You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. for just a second about the feeling of pity. Uh, Pity is an emotion that's marked by feelings of sorrow and feelings of compassion uh, or sympathy towards someone who is experiencing some amount of suffering, misfortune, or distress in their own life. And it involves a deep sense of empathy and a desire to actually try to alleviate or to comfort the individual in their difficult circumstances. So, for example, we feel pity when a loved one experiences a personal tragedy of some kind. We feel pity when we observe instances of injustice. We feel pity when we see images of people whose lives have been devastated by natural disasters or by war. We feel pity when we witness people who are experiencing severe poverty of some kind. Maybe like me, you felt pity uh, just this week as you saw video and pictures of people running in fear during yet another senseless mass shooting, uh, this time at the Kansas City Chiefs victory parade. Now, I, I bring this feeling of pity up today because one of the intended emotions that the Old Testament wisdom literature, like Ecclesiastes, is meant to provoke within us is a feeling of pity. And the primary way that the wisdom literature accomplishes this is through a contrast of two very different experiences in life. On the one hand, we see the life of flourishing, and on the other hand, we see the life of foolishness. And so where Ecclesiastes describes it, Proverbs defines a person whose life is so out of sync with what God has designed that it refers to that person as a fool. And so as the teacher of Ecclesiastes describes, which this is what he's doing so often, is describing the life of foolishness, or as he positions it, the futility of life apart from God, we should not read these descriptions with any amount of condescending, self-righteous judgment in our hearts. We read these descriptions through the lens of pity. It is a heartbreaking description. Furthermore, we need to read humbly and reflectively in order to discern if the foolishness being described actually reflects our own lives. And so our passage this morning is a timely example of this. The teacher is going to lament the pity of an isolated life. Now, over the last few months, we've talked about the problem of isolation a fair amount, uh, and I think it bears repeating. Right now, more than 60% of Americans self-report feelings of not just occasional loneliness, but chronic loneliness. And so studies would show that this is more than a merely emotional danger in our lives. There are physical implications as well. Do you know that individuals who report feelings of chronic loneliness are more likely to experience things like dementia, heart disease, and stroke? One specialist has reported that chronic loneliness has equivalent effects on our health to smoking 15 cigarettes per day. 
And we can blame the pandemic and we can blame technology, but you know that the percentage of people reporting these feelings of chronic loneliness have actually been on the rise since the 1970s. And so it, those are certainly factors, but that's like way before the pandemic, way before Instagram and all of these other things poisoning our souls. So it's more complicated than just those two factors. And my point in this is just to say, this, this problem of loneliness is a very common and complex problem, but it has a very simple solution. And so today, we're gonna talk about cultivating the connected life. And so if you like to read in your Bible or on an app, then we're gonna be in Ecclesiastes chapter four, uh, specifically verses seven to 16. Uh, All the scripture will be on the screen uh, as always. And as always, we're gonna start with the scriptures. And so the teacher this morning, here's kind of what we're gonna see. He's gonna sandwich this set of very sobering parables between two cautionary tales. So we're gonna have a cautionary tale, a parable, and then a cautionary tale, all pointing back to this, the, 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 the through line in the midst of all of this is this problem and, and the pity that we should feel toward any experience of an isolated life. And so we're gonna start in verse seven this morning with this tale of the lonely miser. So look at verse seven with me. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. So, There is a term for the person described in this story, and that term is miser. Now, a miser is a person who, as this tale describes, is extremely stingy or thrifty or excessively frugal, often to the point of being unreasonably reluctant to spend any amount of money. And miserly individuals typically hoard their wealth or hoard their possessions, seeking to just accumulate and to retain them at the expense of actually enjoying life's comforts or sharing their resources with others. And so think with me for a second about Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Um, I brought a picture of him this morning. This is a, this is a real, that's what he actually looked like. Um, arguably the most famous miserly character in literature, Scrooge is a cold-hearted, stingy businessman who despises the Christmas season. He's wealthy, but he's also miserable. He has the means to be generous and to help those in need, but instead he hoards everything for himself. And ironically, he also, in the midst of this, foregoes his own comfort and his own enjoyment, choosing to work in the cold and to live in this dark, dank mansion. He also fits the description of the teacher here, describing this miserly person, because Scrooge is alone and largely isolated from other relationships. And so coming back to our story here, the miser has no one for whom he is laboring away not even a family number. The text says a son or a brother. There's just no one. And so as a result, this miser is reflecting on his experience going, who who am I struggling for and depriving myself of good things? What is the point of this? It is pointless. And understand the point or the problem here is not wealth. The problem is an unwillingness to be content with and enjoy what you have and more specifically to be relationally isolated in that behavior. 
And believe it or not, I, I, I think that some of us share more in common with Scrooge than what we think. We may not have his money, but his miserly heart is common in our culture. So many people prioritize work and professional accomplishment and the security of money, even if it's not very much, but the security of money to the detriment of our ability to actually build relationship with other people. And so I'm, I'll say more about this in just a few minutes, but some of us are just stretched scheduling-wise because of work so thin, we don't have time for meaningful relationship, not with family and not with friends. And while busyness is often seen as a sign of importance in our country, the teacher would say it is a reason for pity. And so next, notice how he moves now into these set of parables in verse nine. He says, two are better than one because they have a great reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So the obvious point here is that connection is better than isolation. That's what the teacher means by this proverb, two are better than one. And notice how he gives three examples to substantiate his claim. Now, scholars believe that the teacher's imagery here is meant to depict uh, a couple of people who are on a journey together. So first, he imagines imagines someone falling down, uh, most likely in some sort of life-threatening manner, like off the side of a cliff, but having someone there to help them up. And he comments on what a pity it would be if someone experienced that kind of fall, but didn't have someone there to help them back up. Second, he imagines two people relying on the physical warmth of shared body heat in the cold. Third, he references the safety of numbers if physically attacked, something that was a very common occurrence for people on a physical journey during this time. There were bandits and robbers that would hide in caves and around corners on these trails, and they would attack people who were traveling alone and rob them and beat them and sometimes even take their life. And so the point there is just that there's strength in that situation in numbers. And so in all of these cases and more, he's saying two are better than one, that connection is better than isolation. Now, when we read those examples, they may not seem like the most practical examples to us because we have heaters and most of us are not falling off cliffs very often. Um, But I want you to think about these examples through a different lens. Instead of a physical journey, I want to invite you to consider the emotional journey that we all experience in life and the importance of meaningful relationship in the midst of it. Because, for instance, we all fall down in the proverbial sense emotionally. Agreed? Like every, everyone's nervous system gets dysregulated from time to time. We get anxious, we get depressed, we get angry, and when that happens, the non-anxious presence of another is one of the most powerful means of being lifted up, if you will. Furthermore, while we may have better heating systems than portrayed in this text, we all need the comfort of others. I don't know if you remember this, but in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says that one of the outworkings of our love for one another is to, quote, weep with those who weep. And so when, when others are willing to help shoulder our emotional experience with us, 
to actually enter in to the difficulty that we're enduring in life, it brings us immense comfort in the same way that shared body heat brings comfort on a cold night. And then finally, sometimes our thoughts and our feelings war against our own good, meaning we all think some crazy stuff. And so we, we think and we feel things that have the potential to be immensely destructive to us. And so when that happens, you want someone else to, there to say like, hey, just so you know, that destructive thought that you're having, that destructive voice that you're hearing, that destructive emotion that you're experiencing right now, like that, that's not true. Or someone to be there and to say, hey, like I know that what you're feeling feels like it's never gonna lift. It feels like it's going to crush you, but I've been there and it's going to lift. It isn't forever. We need that kind of protection just as much as we need, maybe more in our own culture and just day-to-day life than we need the physical protection when we're under attack. And so I would argue that this point is irrefutable to an extent that very few points are. Two are better than one. Connection is unequivocally better than isolation. Now notice how he closes out chapter four with this tale of an isolated king. In verse 13, he says this, better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Now, if you are finding it a bit of a struggle to track with this story, I want you to know you're in very good company. (laughs) Commentators are not certain what to do with much of it either. And the challenge in this kind of weird, bizarrely put together story is keeping track of of like which character each comment is about. So here is a general practice that I would commend to you when it comes to reading scripture because that experience of reading scripture and being like, what? is a pretty common one because there is a lot in scripture that can be very confusing. So when you have that experience, when certain parts are unclear, cling to what is. Does that make sense? When you're reading something in scripture and something is like kind of confusing to you, cling to what is clear. And what's clear here is the contrast between this poor but wise youth on the one hand and an old and foolish king. Somehow in some way, even if we can't connect it all neatly, all of this story ties back to the contrast between these two people. And the primary difference between the two isn't just their age, and it isn't just their station, but the foolish king's choice to isolate himself from the wisdom of other people. One of the most significant gifts of relationship is the wisdom that is shared within it. Now, conversely, Proverbs would say that isolating from the wisdom of others is a chief characteristic of foolish behavior. I'll give you a few examples. Proverbs 1.5 says, A wise person will listen and increase learning, and a discerning person will obtain guidance. Proverbs 12.15 says, A fool is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. Proverbs 19.20 says, Listen to counsel and receive instruction so that you may be wise later in life. The point is, 
we should be listening to one another, actively seeking counsel from one another, from the people in our lives that God has put there that possess any amount of wisdom. Now, the longer that I pastor, the more uh, I'm seeing not as much a decrease in people listening to counsel as much as a decrease in people seeking counsel in the first place. And so the trend that I've noticed is this. People aren't seeking wise counsel on the front end of important decisions, and then they end up needing a lot of counseling on the back end of bad ones. Does that make sense? So there's just a lot less of like, People, and, and this, is, this is like, and I, I'm like, this is one of the chief ways that I get to serve as a pastor. I get to sit with people in critical moments in their lives when they're trying to discern their way through a decision in a relationship, a decision about a job, a decision about a move. And what I'm finding more and more is not very much of that being sought, and I'm not saying it has to be me, but someone that, it, that that's being sought from on the front end so that we don't just end up making a bunch of bad decisions, In general, we are all capable of making very bad decisions because we're able to convince ourselves of anything. That's what Solomon meant in Proverbs, specifically 12, 15, when he said a fool's way is right in his own eyes. That's the whole point of that, that we can convince ourselves that anything we want is a good decision. And we need other people to be able to be like, well, have you thought about this? And so I would just say it will save us an immense amount of pain in life if we get better at seeking counsel on the front end of major decisions so that we're not constantly just needing help dealing with the trauma of the bad decisions we've made on the back end. Wisdom helps us avoid this by seeking the wise counsel of others. So if we boil this all down, here's how I'd summarize it. Sharing our load is better than carrying it alone. We've used some version of this language a lot over the last six or seven months together, but it's this idea that life is heavy and we can't carry everything that we experience on our own. We're not meant to carry everything on our own. Sharing our load is better than carrying it alone. And so as we continue to chip away at this complicated issue in our lives, I want to close with three simple steps to help us to continue cultivating connected lives. Now, I want you to notice that I said simple. I did not say easy. Sometimes the simplest steps still feel very overwhelming. And I want you to hear that said, and I want you to know that that's okay. They're simple. Like, you're not going to hear anything and be like, wow, this guy is brilliant, especially for a three-time college dropout. Like, he's doing so well in life. (laughs) It's, this is simple, simple stuff, but sometimes these simple steps feel very overwhelming, so I want to encourage you to be very patient with and kind to yourself in the midst of this, all right? Three simple steps to help us continue cultivating connected lives. Here's number one, admit your loneliness. Admit your loneliness. I would argue that shame is the great enemy of the flourishing life. You can't flourish on any front, if shame overwhelms you. And sometimes, feeling lonely often feels very stigmatizing. We don't want to face the fact that we feel lonely because we've embraced, because we're embarrassed and we're ashamed by it. Like, sometimes we don't even understand how it happened. 
This, is become, this becomes much more common. This is what you have to look forward to if you're still in your 20s. As you get into your like mid to late 30s, you look back and you're like, I had so many friends in my 20s and now it's me and a cat and that's it. And I don't even understand how it happened. And so sometimes there's just shame and embarrassment in the midst of that. But I want you to hear this. If over 60% of people are having a similar experience, there is no need to feel ashamed. We're in the majority It is a common experience for people, and we cannot solve problems that we are unwilling to admit. And so maybe this week, this might be your step, is to sit with God honestly this week, to sit with yourself honestly this week, and admit, I think I'm feeling pretty lonely. I think I'm feeling isolated. I think I'm feeling disconnected. Your step this week might be to just admit your loneliness to God and yourself. That's step one. Admit your loneliness. Step two is to create the margin. Create the margin. Again, I would argue that it is convenient for us to blame the pandemic and technology that makes it easier for us to isolate. And I will acknowledge those are absolutely very significant factors. But remember, this problem has been increasing since the 1970s. Now, you know what else has been increasing since the 1970s? Our pace of life and how much we work. And busyness is like kryptonite to connection. Now, I know that we do not all have the same degree of flexibility over our schedules. But when and where we can, we have to work to create the margin necessary to be able to connect with other people. So first, we admit our loneliness. Secondly, we create the margin. And then third, and this one's hard, choose to connect. Choose to connect. I told you, I think I've said this at some point before, but my pastor growing up when I was a kid I remember him saying this all the time. He'd go, all right, I want you to pull your toes in for a second because I'm about to step on them. And then he would lean in with like some kind of challenge. So let me just tell you to pull your toes in a little bit right here, okay? We have to acknowledge that connecting with other people is a choice that we make. No one is a victim of isolation. Unless you have like some kind of significant health problem that literally keeps you stuck at home alone. And even then, with technology now, one of the gifts of it is we have an infinite number of means to be able to connect. And so we have got to let go of this victimhood mentality of just like, I'm lonely and alone. We have to take some responsibility and some ownership over the fact that connection with others is a choice. Now hear me in this. Oftentimes, there are extremely understandable reasons that we isolate. But when that choice is made over and over again for an extended season of time, it does significant harm to our holistic well-being. And so here's the uncomfortable truth. The best choice is often the difficult one. And so in this case, it's more difficult to connect with others than it is to binge Netflix night after night. It's just harder to connect with people. It's more difficult to be open and vulnerable than it is to hide. It's more difficult to cultivate genuine connection than it is virtual ones online. It's more difficult to love people who drive us just a little bit nuts 
than it is for us to just choose to go it alone. But in this case, the best choice is the, mo is the more difficult. And so the question is, will we choose to connect? And as you, I think, probably all know at Formation, the most simple way to take a step in that direction is by committing to a community group. And so I want to encourage you if, you, if you have not joined one, sign up today on your info card. That might be your step. And if you have joined one, but you haven't actually gone yet, go. And if you have this, like, and so I want, I want like, there, there might be real good reasons why you sign, like, here's what happens all the time. We'll just talk frankly. We sit through a sermon like this, and we go, oh, I know I need to do this. And then we sign up, and we're like, I did it. And then we think we're done, as if clicking the button was the singular application of the message from the day. I could care less about that. What matters is that we actually go. And so if you have some fear of like, well, now, like, I signed, it's been like a couple months. Here's what's not going to happen. You're not going to walk in, and people are going to be like, um, you haven't been here for like the last two months. And if someone says that to you, they suck. I would love to hear about it, because we'll have some follow-up conversation. But no one's thinking that. You know what's going to happen? You're going to walk in, and people are going to be jacked that you're there. And so your step might be, I did sign up. I just haven't gone. Well, maybe it's time for you to do that. Maybe if you've gone, but you've just been kind of holding back and hiding, how might God be inviting you to take some slow steps to lean in a little bit more? Like it might be a step for you just to go and to sit silently for a, for a whole season of time. That's okay. I know what a massive step it is for some of us to just attend to something like that but maybe you've been doing that, it's time for you to open up a little bit. We start every single one of our community groups with what we call rose and thorn, which is just sharing like what's been a high or a low point in our week. And so maybe the step for you is to share a rose and or a thorn or anything. I don't know what your step is, but God certainly does. And I believe the spirit of God this morning wants to make that clear to you. Sharing our load is unequivocally better than carrying it alone. And so let's not stop cultivating connected lives together. This is, and I was thinking about this this morning, I think we need to let go of thinking of community as a destination. It's just something we're always tending to. It's like a garden in our lives. So there's always something to be tended to. And so don't be discouraged about where you are. Just simply Seek the Spirit of God this morning for how he is inviting you to tend to the garden of your community right now. I don't know what that is for you. I would not want to push that upon you. That's okay. It's totally fine. No one even noticed it. Just you and me. That's it. So where might God be inviting you to tend to that right now? Can I pray for us? Father, we thank you. And I thank you for this so many times, but I, I think it just bears repeating over and over again. Thank you for creating us for true, deep, meaningful, connected lives with you, with ourselves, and with one another. And Lord, you know there is so much within us 
And there is so much outside of us that wars against that. And Lord, maybe that's because relationship with you and one another is where healing and transformation is, actually takes place. And so, Lord, we just know there is a war in this world against everything good. Everything healing, everything transforming. There is opposition to all of that. And so it would make sense that this is the great place that we struggle. But Lord, your word says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Lord, your very spirit dwells within us. And your spirit is stronger than our fear. Stronger than our desires to isolate. Lord, your spirit gives us new hearts and new desires. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give us this deep, growing desire to have relationship in our lives. And Lord, I thank you that you are our comforter. Lord, you know those of us that are feeling pretty isolated and lonely right now and feel overwhelmed even maybe by hearing this subject brought up at all. And so, Lord, you know who, who needs your comfort this morning. Would you draw near and be gentle and kind? We thank you that you are patient with us, so much more patient than we are with ourselves and with one another. I thank you that you're not in a hurry with us, that you only want what is good. And so I just pray over every single one of our hearts today. Would you help us discern what step are you inviting us to right now? How are you inviting us to tend to the community that's in our life? Help us fight comparing ourselves to where others are. Help us to fight comparing ourselves to where we once were. All that matters, Lord, is where we are right now because that's where you are. Where are you inviting? How are you inviting us to tend to what's in front of us right now? pray that you'd make that clear to us. In Jesus' name.